We turn to the prophecy of Joel, tucked away between the prophets of Hosea and Amos, chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. Begin to read at verse 12, but I call your attention to verse 11 first. We begin at 12 because of the last phrase that you find in verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And that great and terrible day has today to do with a day of judgment and expression of displeasure and wrath. I mentioned that because if you go to the conclusion of the chapter in verse 31, which is part of our text, notice what you read in verse 31 about the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, for before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Another reference to a great and terrible day of the Lord. Those are two different days. Two different days. The one in, chapter, in verse 31 is the final judgment, the day of final judgment, end of all of time and history. But that's preceded by other days of judgment, and one of those days of judgment is found in verse 11, which is also a great and terrible day, and who can abide it? And that has to do with God's judgment upon Jerusalem and the apostatizing Jews of Judah by the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who are likened to a plague of locusts devouring the land. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind? even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In other words, there's something far more important than Marriage and a wedding ceremony at this point in the nation's existence, judgment is at the door. Let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, the Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. You shall be satisfied therewith. I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army. This is a reference to the Chaldeans who came from the north. I will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea, his hinder part toward the utmost sea, that's the Dead Sea, and then the Mediterranean Sea. And his stink shall come up, his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great, that is, terrible, awful things. So the Lord speaks of a drowning of the army like locusts in a great sea. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things, that is, awful, terrible things to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, when all is said and done. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beneath 
beareth her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain. Moderately, he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. So promise of a great harvest. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pommel worm, my great army, which I sent among you, that is, in my displeasure and my wrath. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And now begins our text for the next five verses. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Far the reading of the prophecy and the word of God and our text as announced are the verses 28 through 32 of Joel chapter 2. And the passage begins with these words, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Words with which most everyone here is familiar, are you not? Not so much as words found in the prophecy of Joel, but words spoken by a certain disciple who had just become an apostle by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day we know and mark as Pentecost. So that the Holy Spirit was poured out 40 day, 10 days after Christ's ascension and 40 days after his, sorry, 50 days after his resurrection, and upon the 120 in the upper room, and they went down into the streets of Jerusalem, which was marking a feast day, so Jews of many provinces around the whole of the Mediterranean Sea had gathered for that particular feast day, and these men who had their own dialects from the various provinces they knew Hebrew, they knew Greek for business, and they also had their own dialects, such as the Frisian language, and said they're talking in our languages. How can that be? They must be drunk. Well, Peter said, we are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, without, and with that declaration by the Apostle Peter, you have the official beginning of what we know as the New Testament age. The last will and testament, because in that last will and testament are going to appear not only the names of those of Jewish extraction, 
but of Gentile extraction as well. And that age, which is the New Testament age, beloved, was to be known as and is known as the age of evangelism, the age of the spread of the gospel. Far different from the Old Testament, when the people of God, the church, was to confine itself to that narrow little piece of land bound by the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and to be distinctive by isolating themselves from the idolatrous Gentiles uncircumcised around them, almost with signs on the border saying, enter at your own risk, not the church at the open door, welcome to enter. Enter at your own risk, trespassers will be prosecuted, and if you don't leave, we may, we may well execute you. Not exactly the age of evangelism, is it? They were immature, spiritually immature, and they were to be kept separate and distinctive from the influence of idolatry and its immoralities by this separation and isolation. And then you get the New Testament age and those who were the believers and the God-fearing and the children of God were to go out into that Gentile idolatrous world and to take the offensive, if you will, and to preach the gospel. And when believers were gathered and they had churches, they didn't say, now all run back to the promised land and isolate yourself. They said, stay right where you're at. Whatever the city may be, however wicked it may be, it may be Corinth, which was like San Francisco and any name, any city of perversion you want to name these days, and there make the congregation, and there live, and there make your witness. What explains the difference? That they would be able to live within those wicked cities and remain distinctive. The answer is, of course, Christ, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as he comes with the life of Christ, if you will, our elder brother. And because he brings to us the life of our elder brother, there is a spiritual maturity to live distinctive in the world, though not to be of the world, and as we live in the world, amongst society, to bear witness and evangelize, and then to send others further out into the world to preach the gospel and to continue to gather God's own from the Gentiles, those who up to that point were uncircumcised, not only of flesh, but of heart. The age of evangelism by the power of the working of the Holy Spirit and those who believe and carry the name of Christ Jesus. Now the question confronts us Beloved, how interested are we as Protestant Reformed in the salvation of others? That's a question that the Protestant Reformed churches must ask themselves, ourselves. I'm preaching this around. You have a man who was a missionary. 
manager pastor. Wonderful. Two others have been called back from the Philippines to fill our vacancies. Wonderful. I don't disagree with the decision of the broader assemblies. Talk to the men, talk to those who made a decision. There's reason, time to leave the Philippines and be contacted with them as we were. But that must not be the end of our mission work as churches beloved. We have one man and he's not even laboring, he's preparing to labor. Together, the Church of Christ is not simply to be left to other denominations. We'll take care of ourselves, we'll preach and teach our children and children's children, but let others go forth and gather the church from the nations. Beloved, our Lord Christ himself said, the fields are white with harvest and the laborers be few. Pray. You may ask, well, what can we do? We're not missionaries. That's not what the text says. Be missionaries. There's only some who can be missionaries. But pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. And we all can do that, and we all must do that. I know your pastor will be doing that and has been doing that because of his background, but it must not just be on Sunday, beloved. We have to be doing that in our homes day by day because the Lord says, I will honor such prayers and such a desire. And that has everything to do with this text. As the end draws nigh. Notice that's part of the text too. Speaks of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which in our day is drawing nigh. The end is near. I'm not saying you ought to go to Toronto and hold a sign, the end is near, they'll probably laugh you in the face. But it's time to bring the gospel to all and sundry and even our churches to be used to that end, by which I mean the Protestant Reformed churches and the members praying that the Lord will gather others. How interested are we, you see, in the salvation of others? We have been saved in generations because some were interested in us and sent missionaries to those barbarians living in what we call the lowlands and gathering them into Christ church and congregations there. So this word, beloved, in season, Tying in with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what is to occur as he is poured out. The Holy Spirit of prophecy promised. When this prophecy was to be fulfilled, what the promised spirit comes to bestow, and where he is to be found, which is also a word we are to bring when the word goes out into missions, where the Spirit is to be found, his operations, if you will, has to do with the church and the church institute and membership in the church and the church institute. Passage states, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit. After what? Well, in the historical context, beloved, after 
what we have read in verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? The word of Joel concerning the coming judgment of God via the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are going to take the children of Israel from Jerusalem and Judah and empty the land of them and take them into exile in the land of Babylon and lay the land waste, that great and terrible day of the Lord. And after that, there was to come this matter of a repentance. It has to do with a repentance. Notice, he brings this great and terrible day, and then the call to repent. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That is, repent in sincerity. And then what? Following the repentance, which is worked by discipline. You see, the coming of the Chaldeans was a work of discipline, and the Lord was dealing with Israel as we sometimes deal with children, disciplining them so that they say, I'm sorry, I see my error, and I am resolved not to do that or say those things again, bringing about a repentance through the work of discipline, and sometimes in a very severe way, and here's a severe way. But then in connection with that, a harvest. So a discipline, a repentance, and then this matter, I will restore to you the years of the locust hath eaten. As they have destroyed the harvest and the crops, and there comes a day following that I will restore to you this crop, this harvest, as you have the agricultural language of the text, having to do, of course, in the end of a harvest of souls. How was the Lord going to accomplish that harvest that is spoken of in the passage, that harvest of souls, by the Holy Spirit, you see, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's the New Testament age, if you understand it properly. And then, of course, uh, if you follow that and go to chapter 3, you have the final judgment, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth. That's all, in some ways, connected with this passage that we have before us this afternoon. So it is a passage that is pregnant with meaning and significance. So if I were to ask you when, it says, after, it will come to pass afterward, I'll pour out my spirit to say after, afterwards, when will this be fulfilled? You would say on the day of Pentecost, but you would be only half right. It's not simply speaking of the day of Pentecost, it's speaking about the whole of the New Testament age. The Holy Spirit was not simply poured out on the first day that we know as Pentecost, but he continues to be poured out throughout the whole of the New Testament age. Without his being outpoured, there would not be spiritual maturity found in any of the believers who were converted into the preaching of the gospel. That's, you understand, the point of the passage as well. And it is a day that ties in with judgments, expressions of God's wrath that come to expression even in calamities and catastrophes of, in the creation itself. As, you, as we read of the uh, sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood, 
That's because there's dust in the air due to some great natural catastrophe and the light of the sun is darkened and the moon turns into the color, color of blood, you see, as you see it through the, the dust and the, and the ashes. So this is a prophecy has to do with the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit and the age of the Holy Spirit has much to do with these days of judgment. Coming to a conclusion with what you find in verse 31, the great and terrible day of the Lord. It begins on Pentecost, and this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and his work continues throughout the New Testament age until finally you come to this great and terrible day of the Lord that you find on verse, verse 31. That's a very interesting phrase, and we might say revelation. That's not the only place in the scriptures where reference is made to that great and terrible day of the Lord as referring to the final judgment. What's striking is that the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, in the very last chapter of Malachi, chapter 4, and in the very last verses of Malachi, you find the very same in language. In other words, the conclusion of the Old Testament record ends with a reference to this great and terrible day of the Lord. Now listen. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Interesting reference to Elijah. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. There it is. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Without the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, history would be brought to a conclusion by a great judgment of God and a word of final wrath. Why has not the world ended with all of its wickedness as yet in a grand climactic catastrophe and expression of God's final wrath? Because there has been an Elijah, and he has preached a word, and the Holy Spirit has used the word to turn the heart of fathers to children, the heart of children to fathers. And if that did not occur, it would be the end of history as we know it. Why was not history brought to its conclusion already? Well, beloved, it has to do with Christ's people, of course, yet found throughout the nations. Striking that you find in Malachi there reference to Elijah. And we know that's a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. He's the Elijah that's referred to, the Elijah who would point to the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What's striking is the words of John the Baptist as he preached to point the nation towards their Messiah and the need for their Messiah. He says in Matthew chapter 3, O generation of vipers, now he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees who have heard of him preaching down by the Jordan River and baptizing many, and they've come in their curiosity to see what's going on with this man who has this Nazarite hair and dressed with the skin of a camel who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth fruits fit for repentance. 
Think not to say, we have Abraham to our father. I say to you, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now listen. Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me, referring to the Messiah, is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Why fire? Fire accomplishes two things. It's a means of judgment to consume and destroy. But fire is also a means to purify, isn't it? To spare and to purify. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor. Here's this agricultural language again. Gather his wheat, agricultural language referring to souls, into the garner. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now there's the word of John the Baptist, which is the word of the warning of the coming of judgment and the urgency to repent lest you also be consumed by fire. But that judgment of which Malachi speaks and that judgment of which John the Baptist speaks continues on in what we call the New Testament record. What's striking, beloved, is the judgment that is associated with the cross. Christ Jesus dies. He says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And what occurred as he exhaled? And there was a great earthquake wasn't there. And there was dust in the air. And the sun was darkened. And you looked at the, 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 the dust and the moon was turned to blood. But the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, if you recall. Exposing what? The emptiness of the holy of holies. That God was no longer there. Israel was not the nation as such by which and which he would use unto salvation anymore. Israel as a nation was being set aside. He did not dwell in the midst of that Jerusalem, in the midst of that nation as such. Judgment upon the nation of Israel. Thy house is left to thee as Ichabod, empty. But then he arose from the dead. What happened in accordance with his resurrection from the dead, beloved. Again, there was this great earthquake, wasn't there? So that the tombs were open. Some were risen from, raised from the tombs and walked in the streets of the city. And the stone was ruled, rolled from the sepulcher by the angel. But that was also a judgment. And you read in scripture, now is the judgment of this world. When Christ arose from the dead and had the victory over the dark domain, beloved, he, as it were, put cracks and fissures in the foundation of the kingdoms of this world because now I have all power and your kingdoms that you're building are doomed. It's almost as if around the structure of the world, it's high rise, if you will, which citizens live, there was yellow tape. This building, the structure is condemned. It's doomed for destruction. But it still stands. Why does it still stand? Because 
in the various rooms of this building, there are those who must be saved lest they perish when, the, when that structure of the world kingdom had come crumbling down. And so there are men running through the corridors of the building, as it were, saying, repent or perish, flee from the wrath to come. Get yourself out of this building lest you perish. Those in whom the Spirit works, beloved, hear that call. Those who are foolish say, have nothing to worry about. The earth has shaken before. We have nothing to worry about, about the judgment of the Lord God and the final judgment. We've heard these words before. We intend to live here and continue to build our kingdoms. It's interesting, you know, that in the New Testament age, there have been all kinds of natural catastrophes and men ignoring, if you will, the warning signs of the coming of the natural catastrophes. I was in Linden a few months ago. Between two Sundays, we went south, and we visited Mount St. Helens and the visitor center there. And it was rather instructive about that eruption of Mount St. Helens when it blew its top. What was interesting is that that just didn't happen one fine day. And everyone was taken by surprise. There was increased seismic activity for months and months previous to it. And the authorities were warning inhabitants, you better evacuate this area because you might well be buried when this mountain decides, that is the Lord God decides, and it blow its top, erupt. And there were those who remained. And when it did finally erupt, they were buried in the lava. One more instance of a natural catastrophe of great significance, and I'm re referring to Mount Vesuvius, just south of Rome in 79 AD, the age of the apostles. What's striking about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius is what was buried under Mount Vesuvius's lava, the city of Pompeii, which they are in the process of still excavating. And they have found that Pompeii was the most immoral of cities. There are murals there that you don't even want yourself to look at or have children look at. It was kind of the San Francisco, Las Vegas, and New Orleans all wrapped together. But again, there was seismic activity. There were those who report ancient reports of earthquakes in that area, but the citizens ignored the forewarning. Who needs to listen to these things? The earth is always trembling in this area. And we have these sins. We have these delights of the flesh we are going to satisfy ourselves with. And we aren't going to leave them no matter what. And they didn't. They ignored the tremblings of the ground, the earthquakes, and the minor eruptions. And then on one fine day in 79, it blew its top. And it covered the city of Pompeii and killed the citizens by the tens of thousands. The point is this, beloved. There are days of judgment and of warning, but low man can say, we haven't been forewarned. We stand in the final judgment. We didn't know any, any better. Oh, no. They heard the warnings, but they dismissed the warnings. Who needs the words of the Lord? You're always saying the world might end. Well, one might not be here when the world ends, beloved, but your life is going to end. And then every one of us must give answer to the maker, our creator, and the judge. 
And so this word that you find in Joel, the love concerning this great and terrible day of the Lord, preceded by these other days of the Lord, but refusing to see them as foreshadowing the day of final judgment and the end of all things, and every man having to give answer for his life to this great Lord and judge. So proceeded. Now one might say, it sounds almost as though the main burden of the preaching has to be judgment, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. No, beloved, that's not the emphasis of the preaching. But it is an important element of the preaching. The heart of the preaching has to do with good news. But the good news, beloved, also is associated with repent or perish. There is a mercy of God to be found. But if one will not seek that mercy, you will perish in your sins and your unbelief. And the passage itself, you see, does speak of the gospel. Just preceding it, you have reference to, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. That's a word of mercy, a word of salvation, what the Lord intends to accomplish in what we call the New Testament age. He intends to accomplish that by the, by the word coming and lives that have not bore fruit, if you will, and have wasted, converted, and then their lives become fruitful by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you have reference to the Holy Spirit as well, who is the spirit of salvation. And these things are to be preached. But in the context of the coming of judgment, because the call to believe is urgent, if you will. Urgent. And he who will not believe will perish. So I read what I did in the, in the Psalms just before the service. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Because if one hardens his heart, one will indeed perish under the wrath of God and give answer at this final judgment. How does the Lord save? Well, he saves, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament age, and he does that by gathering a harvest. That's why, just previous, you have this agricultural language. That has to do with the harvest of lives and the harvest of souls from the nations. And the Holy Spirit is involved, of course, but he uses the word. It's interesting when you use an agricultural figure how you receive a crop to harvest. Even I, will make no claim to be a farmer, know something about farming 101. You need seeds, don't you? Without seeds, you're not going to have a harvest. But it doesn't do you much if you take your seeds and you throw them out on the street or in the parking lot. Or even in soil that's filled with thorns and thistles. It better be seed soil that has been cultivated to some extent and prepared. Even that's not enough. Seed in soil that's been cultivated is not going to bear a crop if it doesn't rain, if you get no water from the heavens, if you don't receive the showers of blessing, if you don't receive in spiritual figures the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit uses means. He uses the preaching of the word. This is the seed. It's the parable, isn't it? The sower went out to sow the seed of the word. And there was soil that was prepared. And the soil that was prepared brought forth different degrees of harvest. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. 
but it did that because the Holy Spirit came as the water from heaven, the outpouring, the showers of blessing. And so the Holy Spirit uses the means of the preaching and regenerates hearts and then appoints men to preach the gospel. And they are to preach the gospel, beloved, to all flesh. Notice that. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now that to us is rather commonplace. Almost, we would say, undeniable, of course, upon all flesh. But do you understand, do we understand how difficult it was for the New Testament disciples, even as apostles, to grab hold of that? That they could bring the gospel in their different languages to the Gentiles as Gentiles, and then have the Gentiles as Gentiles believe and become members of the church, Christ's church. The apostle Peter himself struggled with that, if you recall. You recall when he was upon that rooftop in Joppa, and the Lord sent down a tarp. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I've never eaten that which is common and unclean. Peter, what the Lord has called clean, does not you call common. And there was a knock on the door, and he was called to go to the house of Cornelius the Centurion, an uncircumcised Gentile, and to bring the gospel to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea Philippi. And we read of that in Acts chapter 10, and Peter begins to preach, and he says to Cornelius in the household, verse 42 of Acts 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Christ is risen from the dead. He's the judge of the quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, notice his name, Christ's name, whosoever believeth on him shall receive the remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them who heard the word. And they of the circumcised, of the circumcision who believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles, these uncircumcised Gentiles, who ate ham, if you can believe it, were poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit with their unclean diet. They heard them speak with tongues, magnifying God. Peter turned to those with him and said, Can any forbid water that these should be? should not be baptized who have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In other words, brethren, if they have the Holy Spirit like we have the Holy Spirit, are we to be isolated from them? So that, as it were, the Lord has made them good enough for the Holy Spirit, but they're not good enough for us. The Holy Spirit may have fellowship with them, but we as the circumcised Jews may have fellowship with them. We better restudy this. And they were baptized. And then you have a whole chapter in 11 where he has to go back to Jerusalem and explain this to the brethren in Jerusalem that they were compelled to baptize because God had showed them that even the Gentiles as Gentiles, uncircumcised, eaters of a different diet, 
could yet be believers and were to be received as one with them. And then you have the freedom of the going into all the world to preach the gospel. And so, beloved, you have the fulfillment, you see, in the New Testament age and the spread of the gospel under the direction of the Holy Spirit and a reminder that this is the urgent calling of the New Testament church because without this preaching, the elect in every nation will not be saved. And until the elect of every nation are saved, Christ is not going to return again. He will return only when the last of those for whom he shed his blood, chosen of eternal life, have heard the gospel, have been regenerated, converted, believed, and gathered. And so, beloved, the calling to the New Testament church, including ourselves, to be involved in this great enterprise as we look for our Lord's return and pray, return, Lord. And he says, I will return, but not until you are used by me to accomplish my great purpose of gathering from all the nations those ordained to eternal life for whom the blood, my blood, has been shed. The Holy Spirit, beloved, does this how? It's interesting that the text tells us how he does that. You may say he changes heart, but he draws people to him consciously, and beloved, he uses the gift of knowledge that he imparts to do this. This is also part of the text. Notice, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Prophesying, beloved, has to do with knowledge. The great gift of the Holy Spirit is not tongue, speaking in languages. That was temporary. Temporary. Just to display the gospel will go to all the nation. Not even the gifts of healing. That was also temporary to underscore the apostles were indeed the ambassadors of Christ with divine authority. They're being healed from sicknesses. That's by the power of God. If God is healing them as these men preach, it must be what they say are the words of God. What they say are the words of God. These are the words we are called to believe. So underscoring what the apostles had, that had the divine authority. Once the scriptures are completed, those signs pass away, speaking in different languages and the gifts of healing. But there's one reality that does not pass away, and that has to do with knowledge. That fire that came to the heads of the 120, illumination. And that's tied in with this matter of prophesying. And that prophesying does not have to do with foretelling the future. That prophesying has to do with being able to explain the prophets, the word of God in the Old Testament, in a proper way. So that even as we sit here this morning and I preach, we can preach this Old Testament word in a New Testament way with respect to its true meaning and understand it and believe it and confess it. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, beloved. That's underscored, you know, by Pentecost itself. And what happened to a certain man who by trade was a fisherman, not highly educated, but he was a fisherman, this matter of Simon Peter. He preaches this wonderful sermon, this wonderful sermon of the explanation of the prophecy of Joel. This is the same man who 10 days previous joined with the 120 with this question put to Christ, just as Christ prepared to ascend into heaven. Christ in Acts chapter one 
gathers the 120 with his disciples. They're being assembled there. And he says, wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me, it has to do with the Holy Spirit. John truly baptized with water. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. And as they were standing there, they asked, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're looking for an earthly kingdom. They're not knowing Christ is going to ascend into heaven just in a few minutes. They're asking him, isn't it time, Lord, you're risen from the dead to go to the throne in Jerusalem and claim the throne for yourself and we'll have you bodily present and you can rule from the throne in Jerusalem, have an earthly kingdom, Lord? Now the time is ripe. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. You shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit and he ascends up on high. And they are confused. And then comes Pentecost. And then Peter begins to preach. And suddenly it dawns on him. The kingdom is not to be an earthly kingdom of the Jews. It's to be a kingdom ruled from heaven. It's to be spiritual in its formation. And he begins to explain the prophets according to their true spiritual meaning and intention. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, beloved. And it's that gift of Holy Spirit that allows men to preach the gospel. And it's that gift of the Holy Spirit that allows and enables others to listen, to sit under the preaching, and to understand it, and to apply it to themselves. But this matter of explaining the prophets and the scriptures is not simply the gift of the special offices. Remember, our text says... I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, meaning not simply different nationalities, that too, but also your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Notice this spirit who's outpoured is not simply for the special offices of elders, deacons, and especially, you might say, of ministers and professors of theology. This is the office of all believer. All flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Not speaking primarily of little children being able to explain scripture, but it's speaking of generations of believers as in the old as in the New Testament, so so as in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, gathered in generations, so that believers with their sons and daughters shall be able to hear the word and explain the word, you see. And not simply the special offices, men speaks of daughters, women as well. The office of all believers to read the scriptures, to be instructed in the scriptures and to say, that's true. That's the holy scriptures. That's according to knowledge. This is what I confess and accordingly I also bear witness. It's the calling of the whole church beloved to bear witness. Not simply in the preaching of the gospel, but in our lives and as we have contact with others, whose we are and what is the truth of God's word unto salvation. And to bear witness, beloved, doesn't, regard, doesn't require a theological degree, four years in seminary or what have you, and to know the Greek and the Hebrew. Nice to have ability to expound the Greek and the Hebrew but explanation of the scriptures doesn't depend on knowing the Greek and the Hebrew. 
not when it's been faithfully translated into Dutch or English or what have you. We have a faithful translation and we know what the truth is and we can bear witness to it. It's as simple as this, beloved. It begins with this. There is one name under heaven and only one name under heaven by which men may be saved. And that's the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who was Christ and Lord. That's a distinctive word these days in our society, isn't it? If you don't believe it, go to college. Sit in a classroom and say, I'm a Christian, and I want everybody here to know there's only one name under heaven by which a man may be saved. And if you don't believe in him, you're going to perish. How long you remain in the classroom? Or if you remain in the classroom, how long people look at you in any friendly kind of fashion? Who is this person who thinks there's only one religion, one name under heaven? You're saying Buddha's false? You're saying Allah is false? Is that what you're saying? I dare you to say that. And we're called to say that, beloved. They're all false. They have to do with idolatry. You die believing in the names of those false religions, they're going to perish. There's only one name under heaven by which a man may be saved, the Lord's Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen from the dead. That in itself will not save a man, but if the Holy Spirit is working, beloved, if the Holy Spirit is working in the ones to whom you speak, or one to whom you speak, that will be like a burr and he cannot shake it. And the Holy Spirit will compel that person to begin to look and to investigate the truth of what you have said. And all you have to do is answer briefly, why should that man be the one whom one believes to be saved? And you may say because he was crucified and made payment for sins. They would say, crucified? Thousands have been crucified. Two, two thieves, I understand, were crucified with him. Why is his cross so special? Because there was only one Son of Man who was the Son of God who was crucified. And the one to whom we bear witness is the Son of God in the flesh. And as the Son of God in the flesh, he was crucified. And he alone then is able to make, a, make propitiation for sins and satisfy the wrath of God. Believe in him as the Son of God and be saved, or perish in unbelief. And you and I cannot convince him, but the Holy Spirit can. And you hand him the scripture and say, read the record. Read the record. And as the Holy Spirit works, if you are his, he will convince you of the truth of what we bear witness to. And notice, beloved, whosoever, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's also a heartbeat of the true gospel, that matter of whosoever. That's not Arminian. That's biblical. It's in complete keeping what we call Calvinism, if you will, the Reformed faith. Whosoever. In other words, it's not simply are you of Jewish extraction. Can you trace your lineage back somehow to Father Abraham in some kind of a genetic way? It has nothing to do with being related gen genetically to Abraham. As John the Baptist said, God can of these stones raise up sons of Abraham, natural sons of Abraham. The question is, are you a spiritual son of Abraham? Who's a spiritual son of Abraham? He who believes in Christ Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, to have his life. Whosoever. 
be one a Gentile. And however it is that one has lived. Notice how I put that. I do not say however it is that you intend on living and keep living. However it is that one has lived. And that the spirit is working, is there in you a resolution to confess that and to turn from that as a certain Saul of Tarsus who was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who was a persecutor and a blasphemer who said Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest deceiver who ever walked the face of the earth. That's what he said. And yet he was saved, beloved. But as saved, he did not continue to say that. It was no matter how he had lived or what he had said, whosoever makes confession and turns to the Lord for mercy shall find it, however great a sinner one has been and then turn to the Lord for mercy and for the working of the Holy Spirit to walk now in the ways of faith and in obedience. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the witness, beloved, that we are called to make. And that's the witness the Holy Spirit will use to save a man if that is his sovereign free where is this Holy Spirit to be found? Well, beloved, in briefest terms, in the Church Institute, notice, in Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Salvation. Notice it's defined as deliverance because it's salvation from condemnation and from perishing. Repent or perish. Be delivered from that threat from that perishing way. But in Zion and in Jerusalem, they, Zion and Jerusalem are saved, but the point is Zion and Jerusalem have to do with the Church Institute. And it's, by, it's within membership of the Church Institute. It's not this day and age, beloved. This is Christianity 101. Well, I was once a member of the Church, and I've drifted from the Church. I was saved back then. I can be saved now, can I not? Just living apart from the Church. Perhaps, perhaps one can be saved now, living apart from the church, whereas one was once a member of the church. But there was another man in history, beloved, who drifted from the church and was saved. Ever hear of Lot? He left the house of Abraham, which was the church institute back then. He was saved. As a brand plucked from the burning, he was saved. He suffered consequences, beloved, for divorcing himself from the membership of the church, didn't he? Severe consequences. The Lord knows how to save his own. But when one disobeys the ways of the Lord, there's bound to be consequences, and in generations when all is said and done. And so when the apostles preached the gospel and believers were gathered, they instituted them into congregations under office bearers, and then said, Submit yourself to those office bearers in the church institute. And now, as congregations bear witness, your minister bearing witness, your missionaries bearing witness, but you and I supporting them financially and by prayers. And the Holy Spirit, beloved, says he will honor the prayers of 
the saints, of the believers, of his church, and he will hasten the day of his coming. So we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until you are pleased, use us in the service of gathering brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply it to our hearts, and we pray thou wilt gather thy church. Use us to bear witness by word and by behavior, and use the churches where we have membership to spread the gospel until our Lord is pleased to come again. May he come with power and with glory and with salvation.